0: This week we learned the circumstances under which Janine and her family hired private investigator John Herzog to investigate Damien's case. My question at the end of that episode was how did Herzog wind up interviewing family members alongside city-born police at their department? I've been told by Sergeant Joe Bees that the family will be receiving the entire report soon and when that happens Dana will share it with me and I'll first be reading through every page of it that I don't have for myself, and then deciding how I'm gonna deliver it to you so that it provides a coherent context and can be a vehicle for us to better investigate Damien's story. Before I start heading down the different threads that Herzog pulled, including Damien's brother, Steven, his friend, Dave, and Steven's friend, Bryce, I wanna talk about a list of questions he had and a to-do list that he compiled. And I'm not sure when within his investigation he made these lists, but I think it's a good thing to set up here because as we're picking through the complete report, we can see where these questions came from and trace any answers to them he might have gotten. But we can also see which of his questions we might be able to answer with the privilege of 20 years of additional time. There are a lot of privileges in investigating a case like this 20 years after the fact. That's a lot of time for a lot of people to say and do a lot of things. That's 20 years worth of behavior on which to base assessments of suspicion within the time. Following a person's trajectory from the time Damien went missing to now, whether they were there with Damien on the day he went missing or not, gives us an insight into that person's personality that John Herzog did not have. But it's not just time that I carry with me as a privilege in investigating Damien's case, I think. It's maybe an advantage, maybe not, but I'm also a girl. I know, I can't believe it either. Being a 40-year-old woman, as opposed to a retirement-age male, automatically sets me up for a different response from the people I'm trying to talk to than John would have gotten. I'm sure I have a way different personality. I don't know, I've never met John, but I hope so for his sake. (laughs) But I'm also more attuned to different types of things. For instance, I'm a mom, so part of my bread and butter is knowing when my kids don't want to talk about a subject and how to get them to do it anyhow learning to hang back in conversations, to smile and nod and give it my best lady face while I listen. I'm a pretty intense listener, and all those things are probably things that John got good at too, except maybe the lady face, but he got good at them over the course of a lifelong career in law enforcement. That's a different kind of training than the one that I've had. Which brings me to the third and final major privilege I recognize for myself in investigating this case that John didn't have, and that's a non-law enforcement background. So, while Herzog would have had all the credentials to investigate crimes because he was a legit member of the law enforcement community, I bring to this case the perspective of someone who's never, ever solved a crime or tried ever in her life. It is, it is an advantage, I promise, I will tell you how. When you don't know what's impossible, your brain is infinitely more open to a wide array of possibilities, variables, scenarios, and outcomes. I'm like a really annoying rookie. I promise you that in a lot of ways, it sucks because you look real dumb. A lot of the time, I'm basically like a child running up to whomever I'm after this day or that, like, Hey, why couldn't, or how come it can't be, or why isn't it that? But there are also a fair amount of times that I say, why couldn't we look at it this way instead? And someone who's been looking at it for 20 years goes, huh? Yeah. I don't know. That's not something I considered before. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, if you're making a career of something, you're training your brain to think within the frameworks that help you do that thing. Even when you're not doing it, It comes a cognitive habit. Watch a cop out to dinner with their family sometime. You may notice a level of vigilance that wouldn't stand out if you weren't watching for it, but they're aware of a whole lot of bad shit that could go down at any given moment because their livelihoods and their lives, not to mention those of others, depend on it. Not always, but sometimes, if you watch. I love, love watching people, so I've seen it. But also, most of the time, there is no Pulp Fiction, robbery in the diner, put the wallet in the bag, I love you, honey bunny, kind of moment. It's just cheese sticks and ketchup packets and a 20% tip, and that's a wrap. But that experience, a simple dinner out with family is filtered through the lens of law enforcement, and it gets more so year after year. So what I'm saying is that for John Herzog, who'd been a state police detective for 26 years, entering after high school and retiring as a detective, he undoubtedly came at a lot of people with the cop vibe, even if he didn't mean to, because that was who he'd become after nearly three decades. Now I just wonder if at a certain point you get so confident that you know what's up and how things work that you miss smaller details. Like the cop out with their family. I mean, this is all hypothetical, but like, they maybe can't tell you the joke their five-year-old told, but they know for sure that the guy sitting in the next booth was over the limit when he left because they noticed the nice across the table. I don't know. I went to school for writing and psychology. I've spent 22 years of my life training my brain to notice behaviors, situations, and statements that don't make sense, and to notice when stories don't quite work. Because I know how we tell them, I know when stories are jacked up, even if I can't immediately say why or precisely how at first. And again, as a cop, Herzog was trained to spot deception and lies. And those are a couple of great reasons why a story someone's telling you might be kind of jacked up. But there are lots of other reasons too. I have the privilege of having spent my lifetime training my brain for curiosity rather than resolution as a goal. So I stand to read any of the statements Herzog collected differently than he did, and maybe that will make a difference. And that's all I'm saying. That's not all I'm saying, because what's more, maybe something in one of them will hit you like, what? And you'll be able to draw attention to some little detail that will make a difference just by listening and reaching out. It's happened enough times that a project like this, which puts out information to the public that the public did not previously have to consider, reaches the one member of the public who can make the difference because of their own experiential and lived differences. That's why I and the family are excited to have Herzog's notes on their way And until they get here, let's find out what John wanted to know and what he intended to do. First, let's do a quick inventory of what notes I actually have in my possession. Starting with the day Janine hired him, I have notes for September 28th, October 1st, 8th, 14th, 17th, 18th, 23rd, 24th, 2002, and March 16th, 2003. So basically, I know that John worked for at least a month, and in that month, he talked to the family, Shirley Allred, Janine Shanahan, and Dana Kitty. He then spoke with Stephen and made a call to the police department. He had his first interview with Damien's friend Dave, then spoke with attorney Henry Borger, who Pat's parents hired. He met with Bryce Blackman at his father Jim Blackman's office on Market Street next Jim was a local attorney and had served as the county's district attorney. Finally, on March 16, 2003, I have Stacy's interview and that's all folks. What Herzog did that winter of 2002 into the spring of 2003, up to now has never been known by anyone but law enforcement, including Damien's family. Who he talked to, what he learned, what people told him, how he wound up not working for the family anymore, and what the nature of his compensation was in 2003 when he was interviewing Damien's stepmom all unknown variables. We know that at some point after he spoke with Steven on October 1st, he came up with this list. We know that because he discusses what Steven told him in this list of questions. The issue of Steven and the fact that it was Damien's friend Dave and not Steven who called police has been something that listeners routinely reach out and ask me about. Even as early as season one, people wondered why Steven wouldn't have called earlier It's reasonable to suspect that's one of the reasons that later on in the investigation, Stephen told me himself when we spoke, he felt singled out, suspected, and generally harassed by the police department. Among other things, Stephen told me, it's why he lives out of state to this day and he keeps his distance from his past here. It's not a fun one, he told me. He doesn't need it dredged back up. So I know that it seemed weird to me that Steven didn't call sooner, especially since he told me when we first talked that it was basically by that Monday, May 27th, when Damien hadn't shown back up after last visiting associate Jim Sarra's apartment, when he knew something was wrong. But what I would do in Steven's position is really not even something I can compare, can I? I have no siblings and 100% of them, that's zero out of zero you guys, have ever gone missing this is something that drives me absolutely crazy bananas when i watch or listen to or otherwise ingest true crime stories mysteries what have you everyone suddenly becomes an expert on what they would do in literally any situation that rises to the top of the froth of social discourse right you remember when that kid wound up in the gorilla pit at the zoo and everybody freaked the hell out and somebody shot it and then everyone everyone automatically became an expert in the behavioral psychology of Western lowland silverback gorillas. Can you even say Harambe anymore? I don't know, let's see what happens. But you know what I'm saying, yes, that seems odd to me. I'm not saying guilty, I'm saying odd, but just because something is odd, it doesn't necessarily need to be suspicious. I'm curious, remember. I reached out to both Anziette and Dana to ask them individually, did you ever suspect that Steven wasn't telling you everything because he didn't call before Dave? Did the amount of time he spent not saying anything to anyone ever cause you to wonder? Both women answered no. Dana, as a matter of fact, answered this in her interview for season one, though I'm not sure if I even aired it in the bonus content or not. I really wanted to avoid planting seeds of suspicion just because I had picked up on it. And here's what Dana told me then. So, so, did you get a call from Stephen at all? Like in that week, was did did you did Stephen communicate with you guys at all? Um, I don't remember. Okay, I don't remember. Uh, at this point, Stephen was married,
1: and doing his thing, doing his thing. Um, you know, Janine would have had more communication, you know, and, and Skip.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh than for me to have, you know, communication with Steven so much, Mm -hmm. you know, at that point. You know, like I said, he was married. Yeah. You know. What was your experience when you guys got to the police station that night? Because I know, you know, over the years, there have been different interviews. I asked Anziette the same question earlier this week and asked around that question numerous times during both her and Dana's taped interviews. For her part, Anziette said this week she never felt it was odd for Steven not to call. There was a lot going on for Stephen at the time, she said. His girlfriend and Damien weren't besties. He had a baby on the way. She talked to Stephen later on, though, throughout the years, said Anziette, and she felt he was being honest when he told her how Damien's loss affected him and impacted his life's trajectory. He's a really sensitive guy, and I think he was being honest with me, Anziette said. Still, Stephen was questioned by Herzog, and we know he did take at least one polygraph test, though. We've not seen the results, but we'd love to, especially since we're sort of digging into everyone around Damien this season and how this situation impacted everyone's trajectories. It would be helpful, I think, for Steven, too, to have those results made public. He said when we spoke that he took around three polygraphs and he couldn't remember if it was two or three, but that he walked out of whatever the last one was. Every time they would ask him to come in, he'd be there ready to answer questions about Damien and Damien's case, Stephen told me. And instead, the questions would have to do with drugs, the drug trade in Warren County, and other things that Stephen said were at best tangentially related to his brother's case. Stephen gave me lots of examples of ways he felt he was being singled out in Warren County over the years. And I can't prove any of them, but ultimately, what he told me was that he only ever had issues with one specific investigator out of the department I also asked Antiette, uh right around Christmas of this year, whether she could remember anything about Steven being harassed or any of the things that he remembered. Um, specifically, he remembered having been stopped in his car numerous times, told that cars were being broken into and could they look through his car. Um, he specifically mentioned, but would not name um, two different friends who were on probation at the time who had their probation revoked because they had a small amount of marijuana on them for personal use when they were stopped with Steven. Um, so basically what he was saying is that being um, associated with him at that time when he was stopped by specifically um, Tony, that these friends lost their probation because of that it went that far. Um, I can't prove any of those things. There's nothing on UJS that shows, you know, if there was no charges that were ultimately pressed, there's not going to be anything that shows up that went to um, a district magistrate's office. So that's difficult for me to prove. But I wanted to get families' recollections of that too. So I did ask Angie about that um, this past Christmas time. Here's what she remembered. Like going to school
1: in Pittsburgh, and you thought about that hard because. Steven was also thinking about okay. moving to Pittsburgh. And
0: so was Dave. Dave said that he was and talking Dave about, yeah, that whole thing. starting a band and going to school. Sure. Um,
1: yeah, so I think he was glad. Glad that he had done it. that, yeah. but looking looking for what the next step was
0: going to be. Did he have any injuries in the military? I think so. Okay, <laughs> I was curious <laughs> because someone... Yeah. Someone had mentioned they thought his knee injury from the skateboarding was actually a re-injury of an old knee injury, and I couldn't find any, and that's kind of why I want to find his records, his military records, and see if I can just kind of piece together a little bit of that. How, so he and Steven lived together, did they, they got along pretty good? Because Steven told me initially that they were not friends when they were younger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They were not friends, but They... they...
1: Yeah, they had they had separate groups of friends, mm-hmm. as I remember it. And yeah. you now, you know.
0: Yeah. Did so they, they hung out a lot together though when he got when back, he got and, back yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. They were friends. They were brothers. Mm-hmm.
0: Um yeah,
1: Damien hated that Steven smoked, mm-hmm. you know, and just you know, big brother kind yeah. of stuff. I'm sure that there were things <laughs> that Damien did that irked Stephen as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Steven kind of was not, um, even
0: wanting to be around
1: during mm-hmm. that time though, because mm-hmm. of the police we would yeah. know that he was in town. To
0: and they would, would they harass him? Would and they he, like go out of their way to find him yeah, and like I'm, bug him? I'm pretty sure. That's how
1: that all yeah. I mean, when he decided to move, he, he did tell, he told me that. I mean, he did tell me that. I feel very
0: harassed. And he yeah. told me that too. And you know, I tried out to... of work and yeah,
1: well, it's the police. Yeah. Yeah. He
0: can't just get up and leave his
1: job without having somebody cover him. I think they were just asking the same questions over and over again. He was just telling them the same thing over mm-hmm. and over again.
0: You said that you did a lot of work trying to get, um, we covered that, right? The, yeah, the DNA. For now, let's focus on how Stephen relates to Herzog's list of questions, keeping in mind that the first interview we'll look at is Steven's. And before I get too much further, I want to be very clear about what I have and don't have and when I expect to get the rest. As to the first question, what I have, we've gone over that list at the top of the episode. What I don't have of Herzog's is anything from the end of October 2002 through March 16, 2003. It should be noted that Steven was interviewed by Herzog on Tuesday, October 1st, 2002. That's a few days after Herzog was hired by Janine, Dana, and Shirley. So if anything went down between those two interviews, we don't know that. We also don't know what, if anything, exists between the other seven entries I have, which space out mostly through that month. As to the third question, because I've been holding back on the Steven issue and mainly doing so due to lack of anything other than Steven's words, which he would not provide for me on tape, because I do have Steven's interview with Herzog, this is the episode, in my opinion, to get all that out. So at the risk of jumping ahead in the narrative, During those four days between Herzog's meeting with Janine and Stephen's October 1st interview, I'm going to share what Herzog documented with the large caveat that as soon as the city of Warren PD releases the full document to Dana, as has been discussed between myself and the department, Dana will share it with me and we'll get to work piecing through it all, making sure we understand the full scope of Herzog's contributions to the case, and we'll start breaking it out. But any delay in that process simply reflects the delay of that document being placed in Dana's hands by police, to be clear. Also, to be obscenely clear, Stephen, if you're listening, I'm not throwing shade, but I am saying what I know and what I don't know. If you don't want to talk to me, you could record your own words and send them to me. I'll include them, completely uncut. No editing whatsoever. I won't change one thing. You don't have to be interviewed again, but... I and everyone else would so much rather get the words straight from you so we can refer directly to those and stop trying to parse meanings. It's not good for the narrative. It's over after this season. You can loathe me forever, but I'm going to say it right now, loud, one more time. My line is wide open. However you want to use it, it's programmed to receive. It would make a huge difference, I think. All right, then. Here we go. October 1st, 2002, Stephen and Herzog ran through the following things. At 2.45 p.m. on Tuesday, October 1st, Herzog met Stephen at his Aunt Dana's house on Pleasant Street in Sugar Grove. Stephen had just turned 21 years old on July 12th, a couple months after Damien disappeared. Stephen told Herzog that he worked at Worley Industries from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. One week, he said he worked all week. The next week, it would be only a couple of days. He also worked sometimes at the skate park in Warren, Herzog wrote. Stephen told me when we originally spoke that he was a manager at Master Skater Indoor Skate Park on Second Avenue in downtown Warren. Damian went to the skate park after taking a high ride Saturday morning with his friend Danica. And if you're just tuning in, check that out in the last episode. Here's Herzog's exact note. Quote, I was working on Saturday and my brother came over to the skate park. We talked a little and then he left. I think he walked from his apartment to get to the park and I don't know if he left with anyone, end quote. Herzog writes, I asked about maybe Bryce Blackman bringing him over and Steven told me that he didn't think Bryce had a driver's license at that time and that he didn't have a vehicle. After talking to Steven for some time, he remembered that Damien had called him before he came over. That's to the park is what Herzog means, but he didn't remember what they talked about. Herzog asked Stephen about the Friday, May 24th party at Damien's place. Steven said that Bryce, Damien's friend, Mike, and Jim Sarver were all there as well as Damien's friend Dave. Several other younger people, between the ages of 16 and 21, were there that night, Stephen said. One person named Jessica was at the party that night, who came up in conversations I had with her ex-boyfriend and Jim Sarver, both on the subject of Damien and his case. Jessica, according to Herzog, told Stephen that Damien wound up buying cocaine from Sarver that Saturday and not the pound of marijuana everyone had been talking so much about. So this is interesting. This is Jessica saying the cocaine thing, because you remember in the last episode when I was like, listen, what the family told Herzog came to them through a multitude of different channels. You remember that? Well, thanks to this note, we can add one possible channel to the list. Jessica. When we get to later episodes, we're going to investigate what motives someone might have had to go after Damien, especially that weekend with a busted knee. Probably the best opportunity anyone who had an issue with Damien ever saw, because... He was pretty tough to beat in a fight when he was at 100%, by all accounts. One of those potential other motives is girls, you guys. I mean, Damien had girls all around him, and I'm sure there were more than a few dudes who had strong negative feelings on that, especially depending on which particular girls at any given time. Jessica's one of those girls, and we'll talk about it. But we're not there yet, so what matters about this right now is that we can start to trace our way from Steven's interview back to Janine's, see where the information Janine sent her Zog off with initially may have come from. Remember, this is four months in. The family has been undoubtedly going over and over that weekend with one another until they can't think straight, trying to figure out what might have happened. And we all know what happens when we're frazzled and tired and confused and concerned and basically depleted in all of the ways with hope growing thinnest by the day. Stories get mixed up. their retellings they get dizzy and details start migrating from one story to the next as the narrative branches farther and farther out the point is herzog doesn't make it clear how Stephen claimed to have learned this fact from jessica that damien bought cocaine from jim that night and not weed in fact herzog directly asked steven how jessica claimed to have known about it in order to tell him and Stephen said he didn't know But Stephen was sharing it with Herzog, and if he heard it from Jessica, it's likely that it happened within the first few days or weeks following Damien's disappearance when everyone was talking. Stephen heard it from Jessica. Janine and Dana likely heard it from Stephen. Whether there's any other source claiming that Damien bought Coke from Jim and not weed, we don't know yet. If Herzog came across anyone, we'll have to find that out together as we go through that document together. For now, we've got our first known source claiming it was coke instead of weed, and we'll revisit that source later on. But take note of how the story reveals its mechanism here. It is just as important when you're trying to untangle a jammed up story exactly who tells which pieces and when, as it is what they tell. That tells you as much about the content of the story as the reasons for its existence. Anyhow, Stephen went on to tell Herzog that Albert, the guy who called while Dana and Stacy were in the apartment on June 1st, Quote, Albert probably gave Damien some drugs and that Damien hadn't paid him yet. Albert had given Damien drugs before. This was not the first time, end quote. So that $45 Albert told Dana he lent Damien could have been in a lot of different forms other than cash, according to Stephen. Either way, aren't we kind of seeing a pattern develop here? Damien had enough trust build up with Jim and Albert, people tell us over and over again, to walk away with drugs, sell a portion of them, keep a portion for his own personal use, and return to his benefactor with the agreed-upon value of said drugs. Kind of the same way Dave tells Herzog later on that Damien had done this before, drop me off here, pick me up there, your everyday drug deal. Others have told me that Damien was pretty set in a lot of his ways. Whether it came from the military or it was just a part of his personality, Damien was kind of a predictable guy when it came to what mattered to him. He might look disorganized and pretty unstructured from the outside, but as I touched on last year, a lot of that was contrived, largely to elicit reactions from others. That's not an unstructured mind to come up with that kind of lifestyle. And an unstructured person makes random drug deals in parking lots. Damien didn't do that. He went to the same places. He saw the same people. He was careful about it. He did it the same. Every time. So again, I ask, if Damien could be trusted to walk with drugs and come back with money, why not this time? If he normally had someone drop him off and the same person pick him up from a deal, why deviate from that for this? Also, if Damien's drug procurement habits actually were that predictable and someone knew he was walking through town unaccompanied with a backpack full of either cash or drugs, even if they just saw him walking like that and knew how he rolled, it would be pretty easy to take advantage of that situation if he wanted to, We don't have to be discussing a straight-up daylight street robbery here. In fact, I think we're likely not, if there's any weight to any of that. If Bryce wasn't planned to pick Damien up at Prospect Street, and if he didn't call for a ride from Sarver's apartment, then it is entirely plausible to wonder if someone just saw Damien headed back to Cedar Street and figured, give him a ride, steal his backpack, kick him out, easy peasy. This has never come up with anyone. Obviously, it wouldn't, because... Someone just popping up after 20 years to be like, oh yeah, didn't anyone ever tell you? I saw Damien hobbling along and gave him a ride to, yeah, you see how that story is gonna get sticky fast. Not that I wouldn't love to hear it if you've got it to tell me I'm all ears, but just if it's one of the possibilities that might be true, I doubt I'll be hearing it directly from the source for the first time. I'm gonna have to work harder for a positive contact other than Bryce or Jim for Damien for that day, I fear. Either way, Stephen recapped the whole Ashley situation for Herzog too. And In contrast to how Danica described Damien that Saturday morning, happy and excited, looking forward to a party that night. Stephen initially told Herzog that Damien prior to going missing was quote down because he couldn't find anyone that would date him and he couldn't get a job and he didn't like the way people treated him. We were drinking pretty heavy, end quote. And Stephen added that Ashley's death had been a hard blow for Damien the previous fall. As far as drugs, Stephen told Herzog, Damian would try any type, but he wouldn't do anything involving needles. He didn't like needles. Anything else, though, he was down to try, according to Stephen. Quote, I have to say, Herzog writes next, presumably quoting Stephen that, quote, I have to say, Saturday, when he came to the skate park, he was feeling okay. He was not down. He told me he had a little coke on him. He was doing okay. My brother had a problem with coke, Stephen said. Once before, Stephen told Herzog, quote, he had some, and when he started using it, he just wouldn't stop until it was all gone. I think he did like an eight ball. I thought that he was going to overdose, end quote. At this point, Herzog asked Stephen about Jim Sarver and says that if Damien almost overdosed on Coke once, maybe he did it again. He'd need Jim to be honest about the drug situation, Herzog told Stephen. Quote, Stephen said that maybe you could give Sarver a paper saying that nothing is going to happen to him if he did sell my brother Coke, end quote. The note continues, quote, Stephen said that Sarver was the man that his brother bought his drugs from. Stephen said that he had also bought some drugs from Sarver, but only a couple of times. Stephen told Herzog that the only time Damien didn't buy his drugs from Sarver was when someone else had them cheaper. And then, Herzog writes, Sarver would set that deal up. Yes, Stephen is quoted as saying, my brother did sell drugs for Sarver. Asking Stephen who might have been a potential ride home from Prospect Street other than Bryce, Stephen told Herzog that, quote, I had better talk to Dave. So Herzog also felt weird about that 10 days when no one called to tell Damien's family about the potential very large problem at hand. Quote, I said to Stephen that I had some concern about him and why he didn't say anything that his brother was missing earlier. Stephen said that he wasn't sure where he had gone or what was going on, but after a while when no one heard from him, he knew something wasn't right. I told him that I had a problem with the fact that there was a party on Friday night, and when they checked the apartment, there were no signs of any drug action, no mirrors, no powder, no residue. Steven said that the mirrors that Damien used for his coke are at my dad's house. I think I just saw them the other day. I told Stephen that I feel he's not telling me everything that he knows. From his actions and reactions he was very nervous about some of the questions that i asked him these are all herzog quotes by the way he said to me that the warren police said that they thought he knew more also and that his family also thought he was not telling everything he knows about this Stephen advised me that if i wanted to talk to him again that he would make sure that he was available to meet with me and that's how the note for Stephen ends so let's take a quick break and then let's finish up this episode talking about the questions and the to-do list that Herzog threw in this report. Catch you on the other side, kids. So listen, I've said from the beginning, I'm not out here trying to make anyone look like an asshole, but Damien's been missing for 20 years and someone is undoubtedly gonna look like an asshole over it when we finally figure out what happened to him. I say this to everyone because I wanted them to understand if I'm talking to you, you shouldn't feel concerned that I'm gonna take what you say and try to use it to make you sound like an asshole. But if you're the asshole, I'm gonna find out and your own words and behaviors over the past 20 years are what's gonna prove it. Having this Herzog report in my hands is gonna make that happen, I feel like. I feel like part of the fear of this situation for Steven is that he's afraid I'm gonna make him look like an asshole using his own words. That's not my goal. There are way, way too many questions still for me to say that I think Steven does or does not know more than he's saying, does or does not have involvement. I'm a researcher, I'm a storyteller, I'm not law enforcement, and as I said at the top of this episode, I'm not wired for creating resolution. I'm wired for satiating my own curiosity, which once I find out everything I wanna know, somebody should be able to resolve this issue. It might take me another 20 years, but somebody will be able to take what I've learned in that amount of time and do something with it, I hope. My curiosity about that entire weekend that Damien went missing It's not satiated by Steven's statement to Herzog. And it wasn't enough for Herzog either, because at some point after he spoke with Steven, Herzog came up with a list of his own questions and a list of things he wanted to do or see done. First up on that list of questions is, who was the last person to see Damien? And next to that question, he has two names, Bryce Blackman and James Sarver. This has been a sticking point for me too. If you didn't listen to the last season, you've missed one piece of information we haven't touched on yet this season, And it's that Jim Sauver did not have a car of his own at the time Damien went missing. But prior to launching the last season, I spent a lot of time chatting up the property manager and former owner of Jim's place, the Prospect Mansion's Apartments. And it turns out, which we revealed in a bonus episode at the end of last season, that a car police investigated in 2003, a maroon 1993 Cadillac DeVille owned by Jim's neighbor, Robert Ensworth, was likely available to Jim. Robert would likely have loaned it to him. This person I spoke with told me, Robert passed away at the beginning of the pandemic, so he's not here to confirm or deny that, but because he's not here to deny it, we need to keep it in mind as a possibility. Knowing that Damien had done this before, pick me up here, drop me off there, and knowing that Bryce had driven him there before and that his friend Dave had routinely done the drop off pickup routine with Damien too, I just feel in my guts like there was a ride away from Saver's place that we're just not aware of yet. The alternative is that Damien left Jim's place with either some drugs or some cash, but on foot and headed 0.6 miles, 10 minutes without crutches, back to his place. And if he didn't routinely do that when he had two good legs, you guys, I feel like he had someone on tap to pick him up that night. I think this question of Herzog's is probably one of the most important because if it wasn't Bryce or Jim who saw Damien last, who was it? And I'd tack a follow-up onto that. Were they in a car? The second question Herzog had was in relation to Dana and Stacy. Remember that they were the first two into Damien's place on June 1st after Dave called to say Damien had been MIA for a week and he was concerned. Herzog wondered how many times Dana said she and Stacy went to the apartment before calling police. That was his next question. The answer to that is once. That's when Albert called and Stacy said they ran into Dave coming down the steps and he was pretty high. He said that Damien hadn't been home in a week. People have routinely told me that the family cleaned the apartment of any evidence that might implicate Damien and Warren's drug trade before letting police inside. Both Dana and Stacy maintained to Herzog into March of the following year, with Dana maintaining to this day that they did not take anything from the apartment before police got there, and they only cleaned it out after police said that was okay to do. Question three. Kind of heads back into question two, but it's, did Stacy and Dana clean up the apartment before police arrived? And I mean, see above. But the reason Herzog's asking it is interesting. In his interview, Stephen told Herzog that he thought he'd just seen Damien's coke mirror at his dad's house. Remember that in the last episode, Stacy said in her interview with Herzog that everything of Damien's was being kept in Skip's Attic. So the quote from Herzog, his third question, it actually reads like this, quote, Stephen Sharp didn't know why Damien came to the skate park and he didn't remember Damien calling before he came. He said that he saw Damien's mirror at Stacy's house. Did Stacy and Dana clean up the apartment before police arrived? End quote. I mean, I get where he's headed. It feels like in his head, especially if he didn't talk to Stacy until like six months later or whatever, that Stephen is saying he saw his Coke mirror at Skips because Stacy took it. But again, it sounds to me like This question has been asked of more than one person, more than one time, and the answer, even 20 years later, it remains the same. Hard no. (sighs) Herzog's fourth question was how much money did Pat give Damien? You remember Pat? He's the kid with the $900 that he confirmed for me last year was stolen from a family member. Different numbers come up again and again, but Pat told me himself last year that it was $900. Dana and Janine told Herzog in their initial interview it was somewhere between $800 and $1,000. Pat told me 9 We'll go with nine for now, always with the caveat that we could find out different at any time, but based on everyone we've talked to and all we've learned so far for now, that's our official answer to that. But follow up to that question from Herzog is how many times did Pat give money to Damien, presumably for drugs? This is a good question and not one I specifically asked Pat myself, I've heard from a couple of other people, though, that this wasn't the first time Pat had stolen money for drugs, and actually, he'd been ripped off trying to snag a pound of weed a few weeks beforehand. The details of that are in a separate interview, so we'll save that for when we get there, but just keep that in the back of your mind, that this may not have been the first time, and as Damien has shown us, people can be pretty predictable sometimes. Maybe this was a pattern for Pat, I don't know, but I know that someone claimed at one point there was a broken deal with Pat, and that's worth keeping in the back of our minds as well before we head further into these interviews. I'm always looking for a motive. I'm a 40-year-old divorcee, come on. Herzog then wonders where Damien's camp spots might be, specifically mentioning one off of Hemlock Road. That's a new location for me. Hemlock has never been mentioned before, so where that question comes from, I'm not sure. Let's keep our ears peeled in upcoming interviews, yeah? One thing that we'll pick up when Herzog gets to Bryce's interview is a way, way more unpacked version of that narrative and how the actual drop off went and what happened afterward. At one point, Herzog asks himself in this list if it's as it was described to him, how can we know that Damien didn't come back to the apartment? And that's another outstanding question and one that's been bothering me for a hot minute too. Because at this point, given everything we have, we can't rule out that Damien did, in fact, hobble his janky ass 0.6 miles right back to the apartment, and something went sideways after he got there. No one, not Bryce, not Steven, not Mike, not Pat, not any of these cats who are around Damien that night, have suggested that he did, except Herzog right here. But here it is, and we have to ask, if we can't know yet whether Damien even returned to the apartment again, What should we look for that might help us to know that? Seriously, I'm asking for suggestions. Leave me a message at anchor.fm slash let's find Damien slash message to tell me what you think of any of this. Okay, at this point, Herzog heads back into the cleaning of the apartment, which to me is a completely cop thing to be focused on. I get it. I'm not judging. I'm just saying... Here's proof to my point that our experiential lives leading up to situations like this are how we interact with the information we get when we're inside of them. Herzog, with a mind steeped in law enforcement, naturally got pretty fixated on this idea. And of course, if someone removed evidence, I mean, damn, that's significant, but even Herzog comes to the same basic conclusion I do, or at least winds up at the same question I do by the end of all this cognitive round and round. If Dana and Stacy didn't clean up the apartment, who did? I would say the question should be did anyone clean the apartment, be it Dana and Stacy or a team of friends and associates, over the 10 days before Dana and Stacy ever showed up? For my money, anything shady that went on in that apartment went on in the 10 days between disappearance and the initial report to the family. That's just, again, my opinion. Still, Herzog wonders it too would two or three juveniles have the cognitive ability to successfully navigate whatever this situation had become? He wondered, kind of out loud on paper in this note. Would the kids have known to clean the apartment? Would they have been able to do it to such a level that it would fool an actual cop, let alone any of them? My follow-up for 20 years? I don't know. I just don't know. Either way, Herzog came up with a list of things he wanted to see accomplished going forward once he finished with his questions. First, and I need to tell you, when I read this, I was quietly going like, yes, bitch, yes. Herzog wanted to check the phone records to find out if they could be obtained. Yes, please. Oh, I'm so excited to find out. That was actually the next thing that Herzog checked on after Steven. So we'll talk about it in the next episode. The second thing Herzog wanted to see was Sarver's apartment checked. The third thing he wanted to see was Damien's apartment, quote, Check to see if anything happened there. These are all things that I asked had they been done, and they're all things that it's kind of hard to get details about whether and how and when they were done. We know a little bit. We don't know all the details. Hopefully we'll find out more this season, especially through his continued notes. But finally, this section of Herzog's notes ends on a mind meld kind of moment because seriously, John, freaking samesies, dude. John Herzog and I would both really, really still like to know if Damien didn't say anything about a ride back to his apartment after exiting the car, at the corner of Dahl and Prospect. How could he not have been expecting a ride back from someone else? I mean, you guys, come on. This is such a big, big deal. Someone was coming for that man when he got done at Sarver's because as of right now in my head, there's no way to me he was walking back to Cedar Street. No way somebody prove me wrong or speak up if you know because in my opinion and pardon me for being ridiculously blunt here but come on this is some silly ass nonsense like janine said in that video we covered the hell out of last week geez you'd think he would know if damien were being dropped off and everyone everyone you guys was expecting him back at that apartment how did everyone think he was supposed to be getting back there silly Ass nonsense. Somebody knows. And just because I can, and because she said it, and because I'm not confident that everybody in Warren has heard it yet, let's hear what Janine had to say to anyone, anyone who knows and isn't talking.
1: If I could talk to David now. I think it would be I am so sorry that uh, this happened that your life was cut so short that you didn't have you didn't have time to do anything. To see that I miss you more to Did, uh, you one could say. Tell, I know you know that I think about you because I do believe you're in heaven. I wish I could have protected you. I wish I could have seen in the future to stop this. We just miss you. We just want to find you and put your soul to rest.
0: And I still love you.
1: Tell you, to you, to you. This is the person, the person that taken Damien. I hope you feel guilty. I hope that it just gnaws on you come up behind you do they know it's you are they gonna go past you they're gonna pull you over do the person in front of you the person in back of you do they know
0: smoke is a weekly true crime podcast written and told by me Stacy Gross of two moms media your producers are myself and Brian Hagberg of your daily Local Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. If you like this podcast, please take a second to rate and review on whatever platform you're using to listen. It makes a huge difference and it helps more people hear about Damien's case. If you have information you'd like to share with the police, reach out to Detective Tiffany Post at 814-723-2700. If you have information you don't want to share with police, memories or stories of Damien, reach out to me at 814-230-5855. Texting is the quickest way to get at me. If you're not sure whether what you have to tell me is worth telling me, it is. Please hit send on it.